0: This is a Rooster Teeth production. August 9th, 2007. Air Morea Flight 1121, a de Havilland Twin Otter with 20 people on board, is about to take off on one of the shortest passenger plane routes in the world. The flight will only take 7 minutes departing from the island of Morea bound for Tahiti. This flight runs 40 times a day and the only crew member on board is one pilot. Shortly after takeoff, the plane is climbing through 350 feet when the pilot retracts his flaps. Without warning, the plane pitches down towards the ocean below. Witnesses on the island are horrified as the plane impacts the water, killing all on board. What happened to turn this short flight so tragic? Was this an avoidable incident? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Gus. (laughs) you okay there you sound a little you sound a little froggy (laughs) no i'm good no frogs allowed in recordings listen when it comes to amphibians we already covered that in the last episode with chalks ocean (laughs) airways okay so get that get that out of the system now no amphibians allowed on this episode yeah before we get into the meat don't forget give us a follow on social media uh twitter and instagram at black box down pod oh and facebook too can't forget that we post supplemental images and um you know links to stuff that maybe uh you can't quite picture in your head. You you'll want to check it out just because the location where this incident took place is absolutely beautiful. I've, I've never been there. Have you ever been to Tahiti? Uh Chris? No,
1: no I haven't. But if it's only
0: 7 minutes away. Well, not for us. <laughs> I know. No, I'm <laughs> <From Morea. laughs> so yeah, I guess uh, Morea is an island uh just west of Tahiti. It's a real real quick flight between the two of them. The airport on Morea is like on the northeast corner of the island. And the airport on Tahiti is like in the very west. So it's like, it's just a real quick hop Man. from one island to the other. Uh, it's crazy to me that they they ran this route 40 times a day. That is a lot. That's, that is so much. I guess with a seven-minute flight, you know, you can do that. Just turn it around real quick. Yeah. But yeah, I guess, uh, so to dig into it, this plane, this um, de Havilland Otter or Twin Otter, You know, it's obviously it's a smaller plane. There were only twenty people on board. It was the pilot and nineteen passengers. Uh, It's like a twin propeller plane, but it's it's really small. It's it's even smaller than like most commuter planes that you think of. Uh, Uh uh, So not not like the big passenger like transoceanic planes that you you think of often. So it's pretty small. What's the max capacity of it? I think it was at max capacity. I think it was full. (laughs) So yeah, that was that was it. Twenty people. Well, they could have had another pilot, I guess. So the pilot himself was a 53 year old man named Michel uh, Santorin, who had about 3,515 hours of flight time. And this particular twin otter was about 28 years old. These planes are considered; they, they're considered like pretty sturdy workhorses. They're 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 well known. They're not a ton of them made, uh, but they're like they're like SUVs. You know, you're gonna just toss a bunch of people in the back and go somewhere. Okay, <laughs> considered pretty reliable planes. So because this route is only seven minutes long, seven minutes of flying time, they only cruise at about 600 feet typically. So Whoa. a very low flight. Yeah. Whoa. I, was, I I wanted to ask that earlier, like how high up they go with that many. 600 feet? Well, you think about it. It's like they take off, then immediately have to be ready to land. Just seven minutes is not very long. Yeah. So yeah, they only fly at about 600 feet over the ocean. And the, you know they're not worried about hitting any buildings or anything. They're going over the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's relatively low. And like I said, uh, they only got to about 350 feet of altitude. So they didn't even reach their cruising altitude, even despite the fact it was really low. And uh, because this flight's so short and, you know, it, it, it's, it's not very strenuous. There's, there's only one pilot on board. There's no mm-hmm. flight attendants. It's a small plane yeah. and it's a short flight. There's really no need to put extra people in there they don't have time to get drinks or <laughs> no there's no time for anything it's go 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 i think typically they turn these planes around like every 30 minutes it's taking off wow uh it's like very it's a very very quick turnaround like it's like the pilot who greets everyone you know lets them on the plane tells them put your bags up top you know we're going go go go. go. get on the plane <laughs> shut up yeah you are know you're not getting a drink <laughs> there's no bathroom <laughs> there, there's no in-flight entertainment look out the window so uh, start up for this flight began at about 11.53 a.m. local time, uh, and it was clear to taxi about four minutes later. Flight 1121 lined up on runway 12 and was clear for takeoff at about noon. And a couple seconds before 12.01, the flaps were retracted, and about nine seconds after that, the propeller speed was reduced. Uh, and when this happened, the pilot uttered an expression of surprise, followed by two ground proximity warning system sounds. The propeller speed was then increased, and then four more ground proximity warnings went off the plane struck the ocean surface at 12.01 and 20 seconds. So it was only out for a minute? Yeah. From the time the engines were powered up on the runway to the, end, uh, to the moment it impacted the ocean was about 68 seconds. Wow. So super quick. The airplane was destroyed upon impact and everyone on board uh, was killed. 14 bodies were recovered during the rescue operation, uh, as well as some airplane debris, including parts of the right main gear and seat cushions were recovered by fishermen and the rescue team then several days later, at a depth of 700 meters, a 15th body was recovered during operations to recover the flight recorder, Mm. uh, as well as both engines, the instrument panel, the front part of the cockpit, including the engine and flaps control, the flaps jack screws, and the tail section. It was noted when they recovered all this that the rudder and elevator control cables were broken off in their four parts, and the elevator pitch-up control cable had, in its aft part, a second failure, whose appearance was different from that observed on the other failures— then the remaining five bodies were not recovered. Okay. So the important thing here, I'm going, to, I'm going to repeat it and drill into it again, is, you know, we've talked about this before, about, you know, when a, a pilot is, you know, manipulating the controls, there's a few different ways that that movement can be translated to the airplane control surfaces, you know, whether it's the ailerons, the rudder, mm-hmm. uh, the elevator. You know, in big planes, big commercial planes, they have hydraulic systems. You know, yeah. the, the pilots move and they're not actually physically moving the control surface because the control surfaces are huge and they weigh a ton the hydraulics do the work for them in this case this plane is smaller uh-huh. so they have control cables so when the pilot is moving he's physically you know pushing or pulling on uh the controls which then pull on cables that manipulate uh the various control surfaces and, and there are no hydro- it's all just manually pulling and y- pulling yes it there's 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 probably hydraulics to retract the landing gear. Okay. So I'm not going to say there's no hydraulics. He's not Flintstoning. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, correct. Oh, and there's probably also... mm, So what I said was the rudder and elevator control cables were broken. So maybe the flaps might have hydraulics as well. Mm. So this is the part I want to drill into, actually. The rudder and elevator control cables were broken off in their forward parts. And in addition to that, the elevator control cable had a secondary failure... Uh, in its aft part that was different than the other damage. So you would expect, you know, in a crash that Mm -hmm. there's going to be damage, things are going to break. And that's why they look at all the cables like, yeah, these all kind of broke the same, except for the elevator control cable. That one broke a second time, and it looks different than the other ones. Mm. Like the break in it? Yeah, the part where the cable snapped, essentially. You can think of it that way. Yeah. And these are like steel cables that are, you know, wrapped up. It's not just like one piece of wire okay you know it's like um several pieces of steel wire that are braided together to make you know a long cable to do this
1: okay and it broke
0: in two places correct the elevator uh control cable okay broke in two places and the secondary failure was different within the the other failures so the investigation was carried out by the french bureau of inquiry and analysis for civil aviation safety uh or the bea of course it's um you know not the NTSB because it's not an, not in the United States, yeah. not an yeah. American manufactured plane. You know, the United States has no jurisdiction on this. So investigators conducted interviews from two groups of people who witnessed the crash. The first group of people were on the airfield and the beach, uh, and they described a normal takeoff and climb, short stabilization, and then a very pronounced descent. So they made it all the way up to six hundred feet. No, they they actually only got to about three fifty, but. From the witness perspective, they mm-hmm. saw a takeoff. It appeared things stabilized for a bit, and then it descended. Mm. And again, we've talked about this many times. Eyewitness accounts can be unreliable. Okay. So, of course, take anything an eyewitness says with a grain of salt. But if they're talking to you know several different people yeah. independently, then it it you know, gives a little more credence to it.
1: And for something this close
0: and this to t- to take off and like physically close to them, mm-hmm. so. Before I get a little further, maybe I, I since you asked about it, maybe I'll explain a little bit about this short stabilization that's mentioned here. The runway is, you know, it's pretty short on Morea. Mm-hmm. and I don't I, I, you know like we said the other day, I do have a pilot license, but uh, obviously I have no idea how to fly a, a twin otter. <laughs> it's a it's a, it's much more <laughs> complex plane than than what I'm used to flying. but it could be like when you fly when when I'm flying like in a single engine plane, when you're doing what's called a short field takeoff, well, normally in a single engine plane, a small single engine plane, you don't take off with flaps. If your runway is short, you do what's called a short field takeoff and you do give it 10 degrees of flaps. You wait until, you know, it helps you get off the ground a little earlier because the runway's short. And uh-huh. then once you're stabilized in the air, you pull your flaps up. And I said, you know, that's what the pilot did. You know, he pulled his flaps up. That could be that stabilization they're talking about. He got high enough to where he could retract his flaps you know, and begin preparing for the final little bit of climb. So Hmm. if I had to guess, that's the short stabilization they're talking about. The flaps came up, you know, the captain knows he's off the ground. He's entered that mindset of, okay, now we're just going to finish this climb and then we're going to begin descending. Okay. So uh, that's why I don't think that they reached their cruising altitude.
1: It's just kind of like going through the motions of taking off and he kind of like reached his, he he climbed the high peak and then was going to kind of slowly go up
0: and then down. Right, exactly. The witnesses also said that the engines were functioning up until the impact because they could hear them. That's how Mm. close they were.
1: Mm.
0: Most described a straight trajectory, but one person said that just before impact, the plane's pitch attitude and bank were at about 45 degrees. A luggage handler who was on the ramp described that the flight path deflected towards the left during its descent. The second group of witnesses was made up of fishermen who were a few hundred meters north of the impact. They saw the airplane on a slightly pronounced descending trajectory... And one of them indicated that the front landing gear was the first to touch the water. So that would imply that it came nose down and it wasn't like a belly flop into the water. Mm -hmm. So on August 16th, three flights were conducted to clarify and corroborate the witness reports. The flights were conducted with a beach craft that was about the same size as the Twin Otter. Some of the witnesses were placed where they were at the time of the accident and their meteorology conditions were very close to the conditions on the day of the accident. The flights consisted of a takeoff from Morea Airport the climbed to 300 feet for two of the flights and 400 feet for the other with a similar climb rate than a descent. So they're basically like trying to recreate it for the witnesses to say like, what, which, which of these did it look like?
1: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't know if we've talked about them doing this before, like recreating it. Like
0: Right. Well, in this case, they have a lot of eyewitnesses who saw mm-hmm. it and they don't know exactly what altitude the plane was at. So, you know, they put the witnesses back out and they're like, you know, where was it? Which of these <laughs> flights did it look like?
1: Yeah, that's... That's
0: cool, though. Yeah, because most people, like, they're looking at the air, they're like, I don't know. How, like, if you saw a plane flying overhead, how, are you going to know how high that is? You're like, I don't know. It was in the air. Especially, yeah,
1: Would you see different type, sizes of planes. And-
0: yeah, and especially over the ocean where there's no building to compare it to. Mm, yeah. It's like, oh, yeah, I have no idea. On the last flight that they did, the airplane climbed to 300 feet and was put into a descent with a 9% slope and a slight left turn. This trajectory's culmination point coincided with the point of impact and the witnesses considered that this trajectory was the closest to the one they saw on the day of the accident. So, okay, they're like, okay, we kind of, we, we, we have an idea what's going on. Yeah. And how close to, the, like, when they're
1: falling, like, for these recreations, like, how close do they, like, how close do they
0: get? That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good question. I don't know how far they went down. I mean, if I had to guess, they, no, they probably got within 100 feet of the water. Just <laughs> yeah. I assume they don't get any closer than that just to be safe. Ugh. But yeah, they, they, they probably wouldn't get, want to get any closer than that. But I, I don't know for certain. Okay. So if you remember what I said at the beginning was that this incident took place on August 9th, 2007. Recovery of the wreckage took place from August twenty fifth to September third. They had to wait a few weeks for a ship with a remote-operated vehicle to arrive. Because mm-hmm. uh, they, you know, they didn't have that out there in, in Moray or Tahiti. And when they finally did recover the wreckage and the pieces were examined, uh, investigators found that the rudder and elevator control cables were broken off. So, you know, they take the cables and they you know fly mm-hmm. them to Paris for a laboratory analysis. Again, Paris, because it's the BEA doing the investigation. Okay. The two elevator cables and two rudder control cables broke off in a zone situated in the forward part of the airplane. The pitch-up control cable showed a second failure in the aft part of the airplane with a different appearance to the other failures. And on top of that... An 8.8 8 meter long piece of this cable was missing. So you know, again, this just to reinforce, like what I said earlier, the cables broke uh-huh. in in a similar way. However, this elevator control cable had a secondary break that was different, and a rather large piece of it was missing. I mean, 8.8 meters—that's that's like tw- almost 30 feet. Yeah, and I mean, it's, like you, it's not a big plane, right? Uh, it's about 20, uh, but just about 29 feet. But remember, they don't. It's not like they go. The yeah, cables yeah. go straight, they, you know, they may zigzag around. But yeah, it's, it's, it's significant. So all the failures that occurred in the Ford zone were identical. The strands had untwisted over several centimeters. They were typical of overload failures. No deposit, traces, or corrosion signs of where uh, were observed in the line with the failed areas. These elevator control cables were made of stainless steel. and They were made up of seven strands of 19 wires. Remember, like I said, it's not just one wire. It's yeah. like a bunch of different wires braided together. Six outside strands were spiraled around a central strand uh, with a pitch of about 23 millimeters. And each strand was made up of a core wire around which was plied a first layer of six wires and then a second layer of 12 wires. Uh, And the wires all had the same diameter. Uh, If you ever like go on a bridge or I'm trying to think like where you would see cables like this. If Uh you ever, you know, see, I'm sure you've seen braided metal, you know, cables somewhere. I, I think a bridge is where my mind goes to for some reason.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I've got it. I got it pictured.
0: Yeah, just like yeah, a bunch of cables. Yeah, the cables' outside diameter was an eighth of an inch. The two cables showed several signs of wear in the zones of contact with the rear quadrant, the rear partition passage, and the cable guides attached to a vertical strut. The formation of flat spots was observed on the section of cables in contact with these elements, and the presence of failed wires. So when if they see Flat spots, like I said, that they observe flat spots. That just means like it's getting worn down. You know, these wires mm-hmm. are rounded. Okay. If it's you know flat, it's like something's been rubbing up against it and you know flattened out a portion of it. And uh, we'll get into that more here in a little bit. In flight, the loads on the cable are at their greatest when it's necessary to counter the pitch moment induced by the retraction of the flaps. And all mm-hmm. that means is the most force on those cables is going to be like when the flaps come up. Like I said, mm-hmm. the the plane's going to want to pitch a bit. So then, you know, you need to counter that with the, um, the control column. So uh-huh. th- that's when the cable's going to give the most, uh, have the most stress on it because you're directly going against the the you know the direction the plane wants to go in. Mm-hmm. And just to be clear, like when you retract your flaps, uh, the plane, you know, it's, you're going to lose a little bit of lift, so the nose is going to go down a bit. So you, you know, the pilot the pilot would have to pull back on the control column, and that's why the plane wants to go down. You pull back, it's going uh-huh. in the opposite direction. That's the most stress on that cable. Yeah. Okay. The wear on the cable where it failed was due to its chafing uh, on the polyamide bush located in the cable guide. This wear was significant due to the structure of the cable. It had affected all of the strands except the central strand, which had led to the failure or the almost total reduction in the cross-section of 72 out of the 132 wires that made up the cable. So what it's saying is it had had affected all the strands except for that central one that everything was wrapped around.
1: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: So it was it was significantly weakened. The wear did not, however, make it possible to explain the failure of the cable when the flaps were retracted on initial climb. The first tests, in fact, showed that the residual resistance of a cable with this wear rate was markedly higher than the loads encountered in flight. So what they're saying is that even though this cable was, you know, it had experienced mm-hmm. wear and was weaker, it should have been fine. Right. The, the forces that it experienced shouldn't have caused it to fail. An additional tensile test showed that the presence of a worn area modified the behavior of the cable. It both reduced the failure stress of the first strands as well as the elongation of the cable, and by modifying the load distribution in the strands, it tended to dissociate their failures as well as that of the wires. These tests, since they were limited to the objective set by the investigation, did not make it possible to establish a law for the failure of a worn cable. So they can't definitively say exactly when it would break, Uh but they knew that. there was not enough stress here to have caused it. Yeah. They did, however, clarify the previous results by showing that for a cable with average wear, the failure stress of the first strands remains greater than the maximum in-service load specified for certification and further than in-flight loads. Only in the case of an almost complete wear-through can an in-flight failure of the cable occur. So again, they're really stressing. The cable was worn. It was not, you know, at 100%, but it should still have been able to uh, withstand the maximum loads that it would have been exposed to, yeah in planes there's a speed at which you don't want to go any faster if it's not like a perfectly calm day like there's a speed at which you you don't go past because if like you get hit with a gust of wind uh-huh. and you have to like go maximum deflection against it you're you're overstressing the airplane okay, and that's what they're talking about like maximum in service loads it's some it's it's very similar to that where it's like you know, under worst-case scenario, this is the most amount of stress that it would be exposed that, yeah. to. Was it windy that day at all? Uh, they, they they weren't in—they uh, were still taking off. They weren't, you know, at their maximum speed yet. Mm-hmm. So uh, you really wouldn't worry about that being the case here. I'm just trying to, like, yeah, set what they're talking about here, like, give a little bit of context to it. You've heard me talk about how much I love Native. The thoughtful formulation behind all their products is something I've always loved because they understand it's not just what's on the inside that counts, but also the outside— That's why Native is releasing their deodorant that I know and love in new improved plastic-free packaging. Native's doing their part to help our Earth with their new 100% plastic-free recyclable packaging. When you buy Native's new plastic-free recycled package deodorant, you're saving 37 grams of plastic. Native is also a proud partner of 1% for the Planet and are committing 1% of their plastic-free deodorant sales to environmental nonprofits. Just like all of Native's other deodorants, their plastic-free deodorant is aluminum and paraben-free Kills odor-causing bacteria and has 24-hour odor protection to keep you feeling and smelling fresh. With Native, choose from 10 scents, including their classic coconut and vanilla, sensitive formulas that are formulated without baking soda, and even unscented. So ready to try plastic-free deodorant? Go to nativedeo.com blackboxdown or use promo code blackboxdown at checkout. Get 20% off your first order that's native and the letter D, the letter E, the letter O.com slash blackboxdown. Use promo code blackboxdown at checkout for 20% off your first order. Uh, Go check it out. From cringing at the pump to getting an eye-popping check at your favorite restaurant, inflation is hitting us all where it hurts, and it really hurts. That's why I think you should be using Upside. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out. With every purchase, you can earn back cash thanks to Upside. Uh, you can use it, like I said, at the gas pump. I know you probably get gas, food. You're definitely getting food, right? Upside is not too good to be true. Uh, it really works. It's a no-brainer. Uh, to get started, download the free Upside app. Use promo code BLACKBOX. Get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Next, claim an offer for whatever you're buying on Upside. Check in at the business. Pay as usual with a credit or debit card and get paid. Uh, in comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, you can earn three times more cash back with Upside. Upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week. Don't you want some of that? That's probably why they have a 4.8 star rating on the App Store. So download the free Upside app. Use promo code BLACKBOX to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more using promo code BLACKBOX. Do you ever find yourself awake in the middle of the night reading real-life stories that make your skin crawl? The creepy history behind Victorian nursery rhymes or tales of sleep paralysis demons? Perhaps you've seen the haunting images of corpses on Mount Everest, read the last meal requests of death row prisoners, or experimented with seances and spirit boards? If you've ever wondered, hey, what the heck exactly is necrocannibalism, then 30 Morbid Minutes is the new podcast for you. Hosted by Elise Williams and Jessica Vasami, each episode investigates a new topic, ranging from the macabre to morbid to downright creepy, sourced straight from history and the headlines of today— Subscribe now on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes every Tuesday and on Mondays for Rooster Teeth First members. So the malfunction occurred at the top of the initial climb when they were passing through 350 feet when the pilot retracted the flaps and then adjusted the engine parameters. While he was adjusting the parameters with his right hand, he was holding the wheel with his left hand while pulling back to counter the pitch down moment and stabilize the airplane on its flight path. Like I said, when he retracts the flaps, the plane's going to want to pitch down. So with Mm -hmm. his left hand, he was holding the controls to kind of... Hold the plane steady. Uh-huh. It was only at the end of this process, which lasted nine seconds, that he would adjust the trim. You know, we've talked about trim before. It's like, you adjust it that way you don't have to, you con- didn't have to constantly keep giving it that pressure to keep the nose up. Yeah. It should be noted that the pilot was applying the procedure recommended by the manufacturer. So he's doing things by the book. The pilot was suddenly confronted with an event never encountered during repetitive flights and which he had apparently never heard mentioned. During the adjustment of the parameters, the control column moved freely in pitch as a result of the failure of the elevator control cable, and the airplane started to dive. So, like, it's, it, it, it like when the cable snapped, you know, uh-huh. he could tell it was loose. Like, pushing forward or pulling back in the column was like, it was freely moving around. Like, it
1: didn't, it, he wasn't, he didn't have pressure because he wasn't, like, actually moving the cables. It was just, like, wiggling around. Correct, exactly.
0: And then, you know, when that happened, the plane started to to dive.
1: Yeah. They got this from... The recovery of the, like, how did they know exactly this happened? Yes. Right?
0: So eventually, you know, when they did recover uh, the flight, uh, they recovered the black boxes from the okay. plane. Uh, they were able to look at that. If I remember right, I don't think that this plane was mandated to have black boxes. I'm going mm-hmm. off memory here, but I think they had it anyway. Um, okay. in the in this plane, at that, and and at some of this, of course, there's still there. There's also speculation.
1: That's what I was wondering. Is like, how much of this is speculation versus, yeah,
0: yeah. So, like, when saying the control column move freely and pitch, they don't. You know, they wouldn't be able to know that for certain. But you know, that's what's going to happen when yeah. the cable snaps. You know how these reports go. They don't like say. They don't yeah. like speculate. <laughs> <Yeah>. So, <laughs> if they say something, that's like with certainty that this is what happened. Yeah. At that moment, his right hand was certainly still on the engine. See, and even that that phrasing <laughs> uh, from uh, from the report. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that moment, his right hand was certainly still. You know, they can't say it was definitely, but. You know, that's, that's where it should have been, right? Yeah. So his right hand was certainly still on the engine controls located on the overhead panel. The flight test showed that during flap retraction, when pitch control is free, the airplane dives with a high pitch angle. At this height in flight, the only immediate action on the trim located in the center pedestal would make it possible to recover the airplane. Since, you know, his, he's not able to pitch the plane with his control column, the only way he could potentially adjust the pitch of the plane would be to adjust the trim, which is in the center column. Or like we've talked about before, he could have increased power, you know, because then you generate more lift and the plane Mm -hmm. starts to rise. But they're so low, he might not have had enough time for that to uh, increase their lift before hitting the water. So when they tested it, they showed that from level flight, it takes about three seconds for a pilot trained for and prepared for the exercise to recover the airplane. So if instantly when it snapped, you know, when the control cable snapped, if he had instantly started trimming the plane in three seconds, he could have recovered it. But they're so low, he didn't have enough time. Like, he had to think, you know, if he didn't know what was happening, didn't know how to troubleshoot, and there's not enough time. Yeah, if you, you
1: know, knew, if you were prepping for it, like, all right, it's about to snap,
0: and, you know. Yeah, there, it snapped, go. Then, yeah, you have yeah. three seconds to do it. You can, you can recover it.
1: Yeah, but he was like, wait, what the heck is going, you know, like, it's wiggling. So, how long was it from the dive to the hit? Uh, like in seconds? So it was 11 seconds. 11 seconds. Okay.
0: Yeah. The high dynamic nature of the events following the failure really have to be emphasized here. Like I said, it was only 11 seconds between, you know, when he gave his exclamation of surprise and that impact. So it was no time at all. It left really no time for the pilot to analyze the situation and apply a solution uh, that he had to try to make up. Because he'd never trained for this. This was an unexpected thing. Yeah. Yeah. In addition, the stress associated with the airplane's attitude and the difficulty in estimating his height in the conditions on the day in relation to the surface of the water certainly affected his powers of analysis. The pilot was not trained or prepared for either during his training uh, or during type rating, as indeed most pilots are not, to react to the loss of pitch control. Only a reflex action could thus have allowed him to recover the airplane before impact. So only if as a reflex he had started trimming immediately, Mm. uh, he could have prevented the crash. But... Man, that's, that's a tall order. Yeah.
1: I mean, you're doing this flight over and over, and all of a sudden something like that happens. It's like you're
0: not—you have, you have no reflexes for that. Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the first thought is to try to figure out what's wrong or what's it, and that, that you've already wasted too much—well, not wasted. Yeah. You've already spent too much time, more time than you have. Yeah. The airplane was used by four other operators before Air Moria had it. And now we're going to get, uh, we're going to really drill into something here okay. <laughs> that, I, that I kind of alluded to earlier. So, Air Morea was not aware of the specific characteristics of the stainless steel cables that were in this plane, nor had they been informed of the installation of stainless steel cables. There was only one mention in a dossier, and this mention was not done in a way to draw particular attention to the cables. Because normally, well, another option for these planes is to have carbon steel cables. And Carbon steel and stainless steel cables uh, can be used interchangeably. And so the maintenance crew was led to believe that this plane had the same carbon steel cables that the other planes in their fleet had.
1: What's the difference between carbon and stainless? Like, I mean,
0: That's an papers? excellent question. I am going to get to that here in <laughs> just a second. I bet you've never thought about the kinds of metal that can be used yeah. for these kinds of things. It's all very important. So, yeah, I will explain that here in just a second. The standard checks on the airplane had been performed in accordance with the registered and approved program. No doubt can be cast on the quality of these checks, the maintenance organization having been subject to an oversight inspection on March 2007 that had not led to any significant comments. It should be noted that follow-up on documentation was not carried out as strictly as could be expected. This does not, however, imply that maintenance operations themselves were not carried out seriously and competently. On the other hand, the special cable inspections linked to use in sailing conditions do not appear to have been deliberately ignored, but rather fallen into disuse on the Air Morea fleet well before the arrival of this airplane. Okay, so stainless steel or carbon steel cables. First of all, just to set it, this particular plane in this incident had a stainless steel cable, uh, or cables. Uh, the other planes that they had, the similar Twin Otters that they had, had carbon steel cables. Mm-hmm. Stainless steel cables resist salt corrosion better. And remember, they're on an island surrounded mm-hmm. by an ocean. So that would be good, with
1: have stainless steel.
0: Right, because they have like a chrome content in them. It protects them uh, better from salt corrosion. However, (laughs) stainless steel cables are more subject to getting damaged by wear and by rubbing because they have nickel in them. Mm -hmm. Okay. So carbon fiber cables are a little weaker to salt, but they withstand being worn down better. And remember what I said earlier, these stainless steel cables had flat portions on them and had been worn down a bit. So carbon steel cables would have probably better resisted this rubbing, Mm -hmm. but been weaker to salt. But that's what they were used to because all their other planes had carbon steel cables.
1: Oh, yeah. So they didn't even think to, I guess, check?
0: Right. There's no extra checking for wear uh, uh, damage on this cable because... All their other planes have carbon steel, and when they got this plane, like I said, there was nothing. There was like one mention in the documentation that it had stainless steel cables, but it wasn't like a a call to attention or anything. You know, it's like in a giant stack of papers, it's just like one mention that hey, by the way, this plane has stainless steel cables. So anyway, going back to uh, the maintenance program at okay. Air Moria, there were a couple of things that the report called out when it came to the uh, maintenance schedule at Air Moria. So you know, there's special checks for the cables did not coincide with schedule checks. So I guess they had scheduled checks at 125 hours, and they would do special checks on the cable at 400 hours. And they just comment that, like, those 400 not a multiple of 125. Like, then your, your, your maintenance schedule isn't lined up appropriately. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they could have done it at 375 during another check. That way, it's just more efficient and more mm-hmm. thorough. The structure of the maintenance manual does not facilitate these checks. Again, they weren't expecting it. Uh, and finally, the maintenance organization had never noticed any deterioration either through corrosion or wear during the annual replacement of the carbon steel cables that it was used to. Again, yeah. they were used to the carbon steel mm-hmm. cables. They'd never noticed any of that before. It was not, were not an issue for them.
1: And so, yeah, they have, this, they have maintenance for these cables, but it's for the carbon ones. Right. Or, yeah, or that's what they're used to. They would, st- they would have eventually
0: gotten to the stainless steel, Right. Uh, po- possibly they had had they had had this airplane for a little while they might not have even noticed that it was a different material oh actually no no you're right because um they wouldn't have because they would have probably replaced it with carbon steel yeah. if they had if they had uh performed a replacement on it no you're right you're right so you know and the report says it's difficult to say whether the mandatory checks would have made it possible to detect wear on the cable in fact this wear is very difficult to detect on an installed cable, especially if one has not previously been confronted with this phenomenon. Oh, because they wouldn't know what the normal looked like.
1: They would just be like, yeah, it looks like steel cables to me. Yeah. Right.
0: They yeah, yeah, they'd never seen this before. <laughs> it was it was a, a new thing. And it should be noted that the special checks are only planned by the manufacturer in the case of use in a saline atmosphere, which means that they're intended to detect a deterioration of the cable linked to the atmosphere. So again, even their checks were related to like, say, to corrosion from salt mm-hmm. uh, in the air. However, nothing establishes a link between the wear noted on the cables on this aircraft to use in a saline environment so that this wear would apparently have been identical in a terrestrial use for which a special checks not performed by Air Moria would not have been required. So again, just they were kind of getting set up for failure here. Mm-hmm. There is one other thing here um, that, it, that we need to get to. So remember, I, I kept saying that the forces that the pilot would have put on the cable weren't enough to have broken it. Yeah. We're going to dig into that now. Yeah. Was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> so,
1: that was like the thing that we never solved that.
0: <laughs> yeah. So, you know, we've, we've just been talking about wear on the cable, the cable being um, weakened. Uh, but we, you know, we did make it a point to mention that the forces experienced in flight should not have been enough to snap this cable. So, you know, what caused the cable to actually fail? The investigation spends some time emphasizing the importance of the phenomenon of jet blast for safety. So I'm trying to think of how to, how to, how to frame this. Um, <laughs> there, there can be damage caused by jet, jet blast on an airplane that, for the most part, is undetectable during pre-flight inspection. So what could have happened here, and mm-hmm. they, they, they're very strong. They can't say, again, remember, these yeah. reports do not like speculating, but there's a very strong case for this, that what they think happened was that when these airplanes, when th- specifically when this Twin Otter was parked at the Tahiti airport, not Morea, but, you know, their other uh-huh. um, airport in Tahiti, when it was parked at Tahiti, that other bigger planes that were flying at Tahiti, specifically like an Airbus A340, which we've talked about before. Were pushing like air onto it while it was parked next to it? Exactly. So this plane, this Twin Otter was parked. A big A340 comes by turns around and the jet blast shooting out from the back of it is hitting this twin otter while it's parked, putting stress on those elevators, forcing them down because they would Mm. put like a a lock on, on those uh, twin otters when they're parked so that the wind doesn't pick them up into the air. So it forces the elevators into like a down position. So when the jet wash hit them, it was putting a ton of stress on them, pushing them down and that that had happened the day before. And then this flight happened and then the cable snapped.
1: I never would have thought of that.
0: Yeah, and it's really frustrating because at the Tahiti airport, there had been a they normally they have like these structures like walls that they put up to block and deflect that jet blast so it doesn't yeah. hit other planes. The Tahiti airport was like kind of tight, it was difficult to move around, so they had removed those walls that blocked oh, the jet no. blast. Yeah, and so when the A340 came out and you know was taxiing and doing its run up and you know ran its engines up, the jet blast hit this a- this twin otter causing extra stress on the elevator, really stressing it to the point where it became really weak, which is why it had been deteriorated and was weak enough where the forces in flight were able to uh, cause it to snap. And is this something that
1: happened a lot over time? Or was this like this specific time the day before is what
0: caused it? You know what I mean? It had probably happened multiple times uh, Uh, and caused it to get weaker and weaker. But looking at the timeline, they specifically know that the day before, the night before, while mm-hmm. it was parked, an A340 had come, taxied up behind it, and that the jet blast had hit this plane. So they were like, so they know they were like, it was that taxing that that mo-. again. They don't like speculating, but they say it was most likely that plane and that jet blast that it finally did uh, the last little bit of damage to it.
1: I was, I, I don't know if you've seen any of those videos of people who are like near jets when they're taking off and they're like watching and and. <laughs> Someone's like holding onto a fence and then they just like they end up being uh, parallel with the ground right? like because like, the, the air
0: is so strong and then they fly off because they can't hold it. Yeah, it's intense. I mean, you, you uh, I'll see if I can find some videos like that to put on our social media or even, you know, like luggage carts going behind yeah, a plane. Yeah. And they just get whooshed away. Yeah. I think there was a uh, in, an, in one of the is either in one of the movies or one of the episodes of Jackass. They oh yeah, yeah yeah they throw a football up into the jet blast and like <laughs> have it hit people uh, and I mean that's scary to see how strong that uh, uh-huh. that blast is and you know how much damage it could do so yeah uh, that's uh it that is that was like kind of the missing piece in this incident yeah um that kind of brought it all together how long have those walls been they t- they took the walls down. I think the they had been down for a little while. I want to say they had. Uh, I'm going off off memory here. I want to say that they had removed it like a year and a half or two years before this incident. Dang. They're like, what are these? What are they allowed? Why would they build walls
1: to protect? And then random. I mean, I get they're like, oh, it's crowded. Let's get rid of those walls. What do they even
0: do? You know? Well, like, I'm sure. I, I, I know. I, I'm sure they know what they do. It's yeah, just like, but for a matter of convenience for planes taxiing around to to have enough space. Yeah, but if they. Yeah. Well, it's. It, I mean, it's easy. Like, if you look at it and you think, like, oh, that was just there, you know, as a courtesy. You know, that just there so that the it's not. But yeah, I mean, that, that's definitely not great. Uh, you know, obviously people, yeah, died because of this. Yeah, what could have been avoided, even even though these cables were weakened, it was this jet blast that most likely put it over the edge. You know, these people would all be alive if it wasn't for that. Yeah. So we're going to go ahead and talk about the findings uh, in, in the report here. After a normal takeoff, the flaps were retracted at about 350 feet. The pilot then lost pitch control of the airplane, which adopted a steep nose-down attitude. The failure of the elevator control cable led to a loss of airplane pitch control. The certification regulations specify that the airplane be recoverable in case of a failure of an elevator control cable. However, pilots are neither prepared for this situation during training nor trained to deal with it. So... You can even see the certifications say that even if that cable breaks like it did, the plane should be recoverable. But no one trains for yeah. it. Oh, but now you know, if you're ever in this situation, Chris, just yeah, <laughs> I trim the plane. <laughs> <laughs> what? <A> haircut? <laughs> <laughs> so the elevator control cables were made of stainless steel and had been installed on March 11th, 2005. They had been removed, checked, and reinstalled in October 2006 before delivery of the airplane to Air Morea. So like you had talked about, you know, It was still within that time frame, within that year. Mm -hmm. So it had been inspected by the previous operator, and not not even a year had passed that Air Moria had it. So it hadn't even hit their 12-month inspection point. The airplane had flown 6,260 cycles for 1,100 flying hours since the installation of the new cables, of which 5,150 cycles or 841 flying hours uh, was with Air Moria. One of the failures of the elevator cable was in a wear area, The failure in the aft part of the pitch-up cable was different from the other failures observed on the cables. The external wires of the six outer strands had failed due to wear in this area, which represented 72 of the 132 wires that made up this cable. Other worn areas were found on the elevator control cables. Several cables of this type were found with worn areas at other operators. Twin otter cables can be made of carbon steel or stainless steel. These two types of cables are interchangeable on the airplane. Their inspection and replacement programs are the same, although their behavior is different. Carbon steel cables are more sensitive to corrosion, stainless steel to wear. Isn't that like a tough option? (laughs) It's like, you're you're like, which one do you want? This one has this weakness and that one has that weakness. (laughs) (laughs) The checks required by their manufacturer are based on the number of flying hours performed or on the calendar and not a number of cycles. I was about to say, flying hours? Well, this thing has basically none. Like, I mean, it,
1: it, it... you see how many flights per day? Forty.
0: Right, forty flights a day is seven minutes. Right. Yeah. So, and we've talked about this before about how important it is to talk to deal with maintenance on a cycle schedule when you're dealing with very short flights like yeah. this, because it's going through numerous takeoffs and landings, like numerous amounts of stress on the frame that you know are, is not reflected in the number of yeah. flight hours.
1: And that's it's yeah. Those those are way more like I would imagine worse for the wear and tear. It's like it's like your car. You know, you drive. Uh, short distances starting and stopping and starting and stopping around town versus just a long drive. It's like you're more likely, that's what really wears your car down.
0: Yeah, or like if you, yeah, you only drive 10 miles a day, but you're taking, you know, you're you're going a quarter mile every time, turning your car off and turning it back on. Like you're, you're starting and stopping your car, you know, for every single leg or like 80 yeah. times a day for that. Yeah. Yeah, you're going to wear your starter out. Their inspection rhythm was well adapted for Corrosion, which is what they expected out there, you know, in, in on mm-hmm. an island, but it was not adapted for uh wear. Yeah,
1: I wonder if the wear of the wires, if like, could the jet blast been enough to break the cable, even if it wasn't worn, or is it those two combined a hundred? Like, that definitely. Oh
0: didn't. yeah, it was combined. It, okay. it was. It was. It was. Um. It was a mo. Oh, I can't say that for certain. I'm not like a, a metallurgist, but from what I would speculate. Yes, it was a combination. I don't think the jet blast alone would have been enough to do that. Uh, it may have you know, provided mm-hmm. stress on it, but I don't think it would, have, it would have failed it necessarily. Yeah, okay. But I don't think they talk about that. I don't think they say that in the report. Mm. I just want to clarify that. The failure of the pitch-up cable in the area with 50% wear cannot be explained only by the loads on the elevator control during operations. An external phenomenon, most likely jet blast, caused the failure of several strands in the worn area, the final strands failed as a result of the in-flight loads on the elevator control. So again, there, they're kind of like saying yeah. it was these two things put together. The failure of the first strands was accompanied by a stretching of the cable that moved the elevator to its mechanical stop. The last strands failed due to the in-flight loads on the elevator control. The process of cable failure occurred over a short period of time. No signs of fatigue appeared on the failed wires. So that's all the findings we have. And of course, we know we'll go on to the causes. The accident was caused by the loss of airplane pitch control following the failure at a low height of the elevator pitch-up control cable at the time the flaps were retracted. This failure was due to the following series of phenomena. Significant wear on the cable in line with the cable guide. An external phenomenon, most likely jet blast, which caused the failure of several strands. The failure of the last strand or strands under in-flight loads on the elevator control system. Uh, And then they have, like, some factors that may have contributed to the accident. Uh, including the absence of information and training for pilots on loss of pitch control, Mm -hmm. the operator's failure to carry out some special instructions, the failure by the manufacturer and the airworthiness authority to to fully take into account the wear phenomenon, the failure by the airworthiness authorities, airport authorities, and operators to fully take into account the risks associated with jet blast, and the rules for replacement of stainless steel cables on a calendar basis without taking into account the activity of the airplane in relation to this type of operation. So that's the kind of thing you were talking about, where... They just set a date on the calendar instead of looking at the cycles. Uh, and finally, we have a couple of recommendations that they came up with here. Require operators to perform an inspection as soon as possible on stainless steel elevator control cables installed on the Twin Otter airplanes, with particular attention being paid to chafing areas in contact with cable guides. So just kind of inspect every Twin Otter out there for any potential wear if they have stainless steel cables. Consider extending these inspections to carbon steel cables that may also be installed on the elevator control system of this airplane. Recommend that stainless steel control surface cables are forbidden on the Twin Otter, at least until improved knowledge on their behavior makes it possible to determine new regulatory requirements and to establish appropriate oh, maintenance procedures. Forbidden? They recommend it. It doesn't uh, mean it necessarily happened. This is their okay. recommendation. That being said, I don't know if they actually got rid of them. Uh, another option would be that they just inspect them more frequently mm-hmm. to make sure that they're okay. Uh, but they they might have outlawed them. I don't know for certain. Recommend that a review be undertaken in the light of lessons learned in this investigation of the design and in-service experience of other aircraft on which stainless steel cables are used for the primary controls so as to determine the measures that may prove useful to safety. So just, you know, review, investigation, mm-hmm. Let's you know, study it. Modify in-flight training programs to obtain private pilot or commercial pilot license so they include awareness training for flying an airplane in case of a failure of one of their primary flight controls. Consider the appropriateness of taking jet blast into account in the process of aircraft certification. So all, all make sense. All mm-hmm. common sense now. But that's it for Air Moria 1121. Did they rebuild the walls? Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, I, I figured you were going to ask that. I, I could not <laughs> find a definitive answer to this. I don't know if you noticed yesterday, Chris, uh, I was spending a lot of time on Google Maps satellite view. Uh, <laughs> did you I, see me doing that at my I, desk? I didn't because I was too focused <laughs> on puppets. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I was trying to look at the satellite view of the Tahiti airport to see if that wall was back in place or not. I could not see it in the satellite view. <laughs> that being said, I don't know when that satellite view was taken, and I don't know if I just couldn't see it, like if there wasn't enough resolution in the photos. I tried to find an answer for that question, Chris. I thought you might ask that. <laughs> I could not definitively find an answer to that, so I don't know. Oh. Well, thank you for trying. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't bring it up because I didn't, I, I didn't definitively uh, answer that question, but I, I, was, antici- I was anticipating it. But yeah, that's it. Uh, again, don't forget to give us a follow on social media at BlackBoxDownPod, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, if you like the podcast and you'd like to get it early as well as ad-free, go to BlackBoxDownPod.com. You can directly support us. Uh, you can also do it in um, Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Mm-hmm. I think you can do it directly direct in app there. We also have uh,
1: some bonus content for people who do choose to help support
0: us in that way. Yeah, we're going to be making some more here soon too. Uh, and if you have any questions or feedback, you can contact us on social media or email us uh, over at blackboxdownpod at gmail.com. We actually took some of those questions we were asked and uh, answered some of them in one of our uh, bonus supplemental episodes uh, or premium for I, premium or members first yeah. class. I don't know first class. <laughs> yeah, if you're if you're if you're not if you're not paying for the first class experience, then you're a ramp rat. <laughs> That's what one of the suggestions <laughs> was, right? Yeah. One of the one of the listeners uh, suggested that our uh, our our audience be called ramp rats, and I thought that was funny. All right, but that's it. We'll be back next week with another episode. Thanks. Thanks for listening.